You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. Hope you had a good week. Last week, my family and I were at the beach. It was wonderful um, weather, and if you get a chance to go to the coast, um, highly recommend um, staying at a place called the Lighthouse at Starfish Cove. Uh, it's a really cool house. Uh, actually, an ex-professor of mine from college uh, built, and they built it to kind of mirror the, I think it's the Yakina Bay Lighthouse, not the really tall one, but the other one that has the red lighthouse. And they built it to mirror that, so there's actually a, a lighthouse on top that you can climb up into, uh, which is super fun. So anyways, not what today's about, but highly recommend it if you guys are ever looking for a place to stay. But today I'm more excited because we are jumping into 12 weeks of 1 John. Come on, let's go. It's a great book. It is just such a quality book. And our hope for any series, uh, not just um, like big ones or small ones or whatever, is that this would not be the only time in your week that you're hearing about 1 John that as we're in a series as a community, that we are just marinating in this book. So please, I just encourage you to just read it every day. It's, it's short. Uh, you can read all five chapters just in a day, uh, or you could read a, you know, verses just like anything, but um, it's really good. But the unique thing about John's letter here is that it's not just like Paul, where he has these kind of logical, progressive arguments, where he's kind of building to certain points. Um, what has been coined for this letter is a poetic sermon. It's more of a letter that's written in the heart of a poetic sermon, or it's called a symphonic writing. So it's actually more of like a, like a prose of just kind of like there's, there's ups and there's downs and there's more circular references. So sometimes you might even hear the same passages like three or four weeks from now or the same sounding passages but he's coming at it from kind of a different angle or leading to a different conclusion. So it's really rich, um, and it's, it's very pastorally written. Uh, most of the scriptures are written pastorally, but sometimes they're to make a point or to argue or to argue against something. This is very pastorally written, okay? So it's kind of, it's, it's a really unique book. This, it's written by an author who deeply loves people because this author knows that Jesus deeply loves people people, and you can feel that when you read it. So a couple things, a couple nerdy things first, so we can kind of get our minds around what is 1 John. Today will be a lot of the intro of 1 John and the context and the history of it, and we'll get into it a little bit, and then the rest of the series will be more diving into the book of 1 John. Um, But the authorship is actually kind of interesting, and I would say frustrating, because I would love to stand here and say that this John is the gospel writer John, and the John of Revelation, 100%, no doubt. Scholarly, you, technically, they cannot say that. There is no part of 1 John that says, like, I, John, the disciple of Jesus, wrote this. Now, I would argue, and I think very well, that this is John, the disciple, because as we will see, so many, uh, um, so many similarities to the gospel of John and so many things about him. Well, we know is that this was a John that was very close to Jesus. We know this was a John that physically was with Jesus and knew Jesus well. Um, in fact, in uh, 2nd and 
Third John, he calls himself the elder, which in my opinion is super boss. That is such a cool title uh, to be called that. Um, what an epic title. But we'll see that, that this John, the elder, physically walked and talked and was able to touch Jesus, actually be with him. Um, so again, technically 100%, we can't say this is John, that disciple. It most likely and traditionally is asserted to him, uh, but just so you guys know, so we can all be on the same page. Um, so I'm just going to say John generically, but, but what we knew, do know, however, is that in this letter, uh, it's most like written around 90 AD, okay, 90 AD, Jesus was believed to be uh, crucified and dead around 33 AD, so this is 60-ish years after Christ. Um, this letter was coined uh, in, or penned, to say, in the city of Ephesus, which we'll talk a lot more about later, and that this John, whoever he was, uh, was overseeing house churches in the city of Ephesus. Okay, again, in 2 John, he is referenced as the elder, and he writes to the elect lady and her children. Um, the elder would have identified, obviously, himself. The elect lady and her children will actually get to later in the, in the, in the series, um, most likely to the church movement at large. Um, and then again, in 3 John, in the very beginning of 3 John, he writes to a very specific house church, the house church of Gaius, um, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So this elder title would have been known. Okay, this was a John that was known in Ephesus, um, and he's writing not to just the church in Ephesus, it's God's word, so it's to all generations of followers of Christ, but he's writing from Ephesus. And this is key. Okay, we're actually going to get into his influences in Ephesus of what he's writing so John, what he's doing, this is kind of one of the main things of what he's doing in his letter. Okay, you guys with me? Yeah? Okay. He's running damage control for these house churches and the church at large concerning false teachings. Okay, there are false teachings that are coming out of these churches about who Jesus is, and he says these are not true. This is one of the main false teachings that John is addressing in his letter, that Christ, the Savior, did not actually come in the flesh. Okay, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was a man merely, and then for lack of a better term, he was literally possessed by God, used by God to be this prophet of sorts, and then this body was discarded on the cross and in the tomb. The spirit of Jesus was God, but not the flesh of Jesus. Okay, in other words, God did not come down from heaven to earth in human form. He came down from heaven to earth only in spirit form, okay? So these false teachers are not only believing this, they're, and they're teaching it, but now they're stirring up hostility to the churches that believe otherwise. Okay, for starters, let's walk through this a little bit. Knowledge in that day, knowledge was of utmost importance, okay? Not, not feeling, not kind of experiences, it was knowledge, what you know. So now some are teaching that that knowledge is the basis then for salvation, okay? Not necessarily anything to do with your flesh, anything to do with your actions. This is the beginning, if this sounds familiar, of a movement called Gnosticism, okay? Gnostics, uh, not Gnosis literally means knowledge, okay? And that, that would plague much of the early New Testament writers that they'd be talking and referencing this Gnosticism, okay? But here's another huge factor why it was so confusing. 
first century religion is completely blown up. Okay, you have the Greek and the Roman mix of philosophies taking over with their, their great pantheons of all their different gods. So instead of one god, there is a particular deity over every single aspect of life, and everyone's running around trying to please every which god that they are trying to get out of life. And for the last 50 plus years, Christians have had their beliefs radically tested by the killing of Jesus, who is either the Christ, he was either fully the Christ, God in flesh and spirit, or he was a raving mad prophet who just represented one of these many gods that could be added into any of the categories. Okay, So true Christians are really having a hard time holding fast to being you know, struck by this counterculture-ness every day by everything around them, and it was hard for them to keep it straight of who was this Jesus, what did he come to do, what did he accomplish. I went to Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. Uh, that's where I met my wife, um, and it was a great experience. Uh, we loved it. It was really good. There was an aspect that happened, and I don't know if you've experienced this in your colleges, but in our college, you know, we were, we were um, bordered on 82nd Street in, in Portland, which is not traditionally a great <laughs> street, but we kind of had this, this bubble that formed a little bit. We're like, if you're in Bible 101 classes and you're around Christians all the time, and we're around people that like worshiping or praying for one another or just talking about Bible nerd stuff was just so normal. And we were just doing it all the time, whatever. And then we would say, hey, let's go down, you know, Hawthorne, or let's go down and get some pizza or whatever. And you would leave campus. For us, there was this weird sense of all of a sudden we were just like in the world. There was this bubble we were in, and then we were in the world. And we were just hit with it. Like immediately, language was different. Value systems were different. Philosophies of life were different. All this stuff was different. We'd leave this bubble, and then we were in the world. For me, that was a very real experience, and we talked a lot about this bubble aspect of that. For them, for the, the Christians, first century Christians, there's no bubble, right? There was nothing that was just like, this is our space, you can't touch it. They were trying to believe this thing that everywhere around them was not holistically accepted. Okay, so they were the outsiders. They were the weird ones, especially in Ephesus, okay? And here's why it's so important in Ephesus. Remember, John was an older man, wise in his years. He's writing these letters in the city of Ephesus to the house churches and then to the church at large, um, but he's writing in this place, Ephesus, and I want to talk about it a little bit. Ephesus is a very important city along the way of major trade and commerce through Asia Minor, and one of its largest commodities and subsequent religious followings was connected to the Temple of Artemis. Okay, any Greek scholars in here or like a lot of Greek mythology people? Yeah? Oh yeah? Oh nice, you should be talking. Yeah. <laughs> So right in the middle of Ephesus, there was this giant, giant temple, the Temple of Artemis, okay? Um, let me put up, put up the temple uh, one before. So this is a 3D rendering. It's not live. This is a 3D rendering of just based on all the descriptions of just like what the temple would have been. And, and, you know, for us, it's like, oh, that's cool. That's really big. But like for Ephesus, that was giant. It was boasted to be one of the largest temples specifically just for one deity. So it was one of it what well, it is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, not one of the current seven wonders. Um, but it's massive. So this is a 3D rendering of it. Uh, the next slide is is what it is now. So you know it's fallen a little bit from glory. Um, 
And there's a lot of history. You can go look it up. That's not what I want to do today is talk all about the history. I personally took a massive deep dive into, into Artemis and everything, so it got real weird. But, um, <laughs> but really fascinating. And my friend Gabe and Marilla, they've actually been here. And I called him. I was like, is this the right picture? Have you been here? You know. Um, anyways, it's really interesting. Um, but it was this temple dedicated to Artemis. Okay, so a little bit about Artemis. I'm not a you know, Greek mythology scholar or anything, but this is what I was researching. Greek, she's a Greek goddess of the hunt, of wild animals, kind of the mother to all living things, vegetation, uh, and then specifically fertility and childbearing. That was, that was a huge thing uh, for Artemis. Uh, the Roman counterpart is Diana, if you care about that. Um, so the legend has it that Artemis had arrived on Earth through this great black meteorite, crashed to earth somewhere around Ephesus, and the locals deemed it as a gift from above representing this goddess Artemis, okay? Which, yeah, that would be an incredible, you know, experience. So her, her temple kind of began this cult. It was, it was run entirely by women officials. It was a massive following, and it was a central religion of the whole area, okay? So remember, this is context for John writing these letters to the church. Artemis's depiction was all over the city. Okay, statues were everywhere, uh, likenesses was everywhere. In fact, these handmade images in silver of Artemis were being bought and sold in the marketplace, everywhere, in the marketplace of the temple and also in the city. Um, and there was, this was a huge way of profit uh, in Ephesus for people selling temple likenesses or temple merch, you know, jewelry, figurines, all this kind of stuff. Right? So obviously the Bible had a lot to say about graven images. Okay? We can remember that from our Exodus series. There's a lot of stuff. So Christians and the following of Artemis, they were not, that was not very good. And I want to share with you an example. I see it's already up there. Uh, so this is from Acts 19. Okay? I'm not just, we're not just making this up. Sometimes this mythology stuff, we think, oh, there's the Bible and there's mythology. Okay, let me read this to you and we, and we can learn this together. So this is Acts 19. This was Paul in Ephesus and his experience of what was happening. So there's a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, he was very successful. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. As you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Okay? So much confusion, confusion, and if you follow this story, they end up dragging some of Paul's companions that he traveled with out into the street, right? They were about to just do some harm, right? But then this town clerk shows up, and he goes, hey, hey, let's, I'm going to try to calm everyone down. This is verse 35, Acts 19. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. That's crazy, right? That's like, that's in our Bible, right? This is Greek mythology, right? Bible doesn't teach Greek mythology, but it's here, like the references to it. This is very real. And if you follow the story, if there was a huge riot that was about to happen, and then this town clerk actually kind of like dissipated it, sent everyone away because he didn't want them to get arrested, and the story goes on. But think about this. 
okay, in Jerusalem, okay, that we've learned a lot about, the center of it was the temple of Yahweh, right? The temple, and this was it. Everyone went to the temple, you worshiped Yahweh, that's what you did, that's where the, the Jewish you know, customs come from, that's where our scriptures are written, centered in. In Ephesus, the center of it was the temple of Artemis. Okay, similar vibe. Everybody is going to it. Everybody's representing it. So if you're not, if you're not, you're an outsider. And it's weird, and it's confusing, and it's not part of the culture that you see. So many people were falling away from the Christian church due to this draw and what was right in front of them and maybe more acceptable as part of society. Right, This faith that Jesus was the Christ is just getting too hard to believe, and this other way of life is easier, and it's more acceptable, and everyone's doing it. So through this confusion of culture and the beginning of this Gnosticism, this belief system was beginning is that life is meant to be enjoyed and thrown away because flesh is meaningless. It does not matter what you do with your body. It does not matter what you do in the flesh or giving into because it's all about your mind. Your mind and your soul, the spirit parts of you, are what you need to protect, not the flesh. So the physical does not matter as long as you still have the right mind and the right spirit within you. Salvation solely based on knowledge, not action. So Gnostics believed once you realize that somewhere within your decaying flesh, there's this kind of aura or God-given light that's inside you. And once you acknowledge it and once you find it, that is your moment of enlightenment. That is your moment of salvation, not repentance of sins, not laying your, yourself at the feet of a God or Jesus or what, whatever it would be, but it is your own acknowledgement of that enlightenment. That's what the Gnostics would believe. But John's aim here in his letter is, a, is not to just talk about how bad the anti-flesh stuff is or to say, oh, this is heresy, right? But he's actually wanting, is he's encouraging to redeem the as flesh as part of salvation. Right? John is bringing his listeners and his readers back to the idea that salvation from God is holistic. Okay, that God actually cares about the redemption of the here and now. In fact, it is through the physical life of Jesus that John is making his arguments that now the light has come into the world. So this is the primary purpose of John's letters, to remind the people of God who once again are living in a foreign land that there are, and they're surrounded by different ways of life to believe that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. This God is truly life, and this truth will be the great light in the darkness. And sometimes people wept, and sometimes it was sad, and sometimes it was good. But right now, what I want to do, let me just pray real quick, and then I want to dive into the first four verses of 1 John as we kind of now have a little bit of context and understanding of what John is talking about. Let me pray real quick, and let's get into it. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just the history that we can go into it, and we can learn some of this context and just helps it come alive and expand our understanding of what you're trying to get at. Uh, we can totally read your words in your scriptures and just get, you know, amazing stuff from it. But Lord, thank you for this time to just sit and learn together as a community in this. So we give this to you. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. First John 1 through 4. Okay, so now that we kind of are a little bit more on the same page of context. So the first line, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay, so a couple thoughts. First, it's personal. 
Okay, this is not just some, the, oh, the goddess of whatever, the god of whatever. This is someone that was personal. We've heard, we've seen, we've touched. This was not just a story from us. This was real life. The interesting thing, though, and this is, again, some of the arguments of who the authorship is, um, which at the end of the day, it's God's word. doesn't matter that much. But if you take out the personal bits, if you take out the, you know, that what we've seen and heard and touched, you get that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound familiar at all, right? Okay, well, let's just read it for fun. John 1, 1. Okay, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And a few verses later, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So right off the bat, so much theology, right? From the beginning, connecting with being with God before all creation. Concerning the Word, the Word was God. We learned that from John's Gospel. And then of life, this God is life itself. In fact, more accurately, it's life-giving life, life that gives life. So this life, this God, verse 2, the life was made manifest. So this life that was at the beginning, that is life, this life was given flesh, made manifest. This fully God is now fully flesh, okay? Theologians have a fancy word for this. It's called the hypostatic union, okay? The hypostatic union, it's literally the theological concept of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Or as John puts it here, the word of life made manifest, okay? Now, this is what people get hung up on. This is what these false teachers are doing. It might not seem strange to you and I now, this, you know, 2,000-some years later, but there are many teachings and variations of the time that were not this. Okay, I just want to give you a few examples, a few of the big ones. Arianism was one. You guys can go look up all these. I don't need to tell you everything. But Arianism teaching, this was that Jesus was a human who was, who was kind of made or possessed by God, uh, the, and the weight of the deity, as you see, the gospel accounts took a toll on Jesus, right? Jesus was tired. Je- and then they, this was an argument that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation that, Rome, that, that um, Paul writes. Uh, this was a meaning that he was created, right? He wasn't God. He was created. He's the firstborn, which, by the way, this is still a foundational doctrine for Jehovah Witness and Mormonism, which is fascinating. Jesus was not God in his flesh as well, but he was created by God to represent him, right? There's another one, Apollo, Apollonarism teaching. Jesus had a human body and kind of this humanish or sensitive soul, but not a human mind. His mind was completely divine. There's also Nestorianism teaching. Two natures in one person. Jesus had a full human nature and a full divine nature in two. Two persons mixed into one body. Sounds very confusing, right? Though these are all brilliant thinkers, and if you look it up and there's other teachings and you can read all the philosophies and it's like, wow, these were really thought through, they're not right. They're not biblical. Okay, side note, when you come across things in Scripture that you just can't explain, uh, it's okay to not have to make up an answer. <laughs> it's okay to not have to be like, well, it must be this. It's okay to say, wow, I don't know. God is smarter than me. In fact, but these are actually called false teachings. It's not just people trying to guess, oh, maybe it's this or maybe it's that over coffee. They're actually teaching these things. And these are part of those false teachings. And John actually has scathing words for these. This is Second John 1.7. 
For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Right? Shots fired. Like, this is a big deal. This isn't just like, oh, whatever. They're just silly billies. It's like, this is, no, they're the antichrist, right? So one of the best definitions of this fully God and fully human in the Bible is Paul's explanation into the Philippians of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.6 who, though he, being Jesus Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or the word is kept, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, the likeness of men, but he was God, right? This wasn't just taking the yellow of God and the red of man and mixing it together to make Jesus an Oompa Loompa. Like, that's not... That's not what they're talking about here. I just had to do that. I'm so sorry. Right? But he is God living exactly like a human. Right? We tell stories all the time. We kind of glorify these narratives of humans ascending into God-like beings. But this is God descending. Right? Taking the form of a servant, descending into human likeness. The creator actually becoming his creation. In fact, Jesus himself harps on this fact that his actual flesh is eternal life. Okay, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Incredible chapter. We taught on it during our John series. Real quick, Jesus is doing some incredible things. He's feeding 5,000 people with just a little bit of food, which immediately puts him in this incredible position to mirror the act of God providing manna in the desert so long ago for the Israelites. Then his disciples get into a boat, and they row out, and looking back, they see Jesus walking towards them on the water, his supernatural ability over the natural elements, and his passing through the waters was again a nod to his display of his deity and reminders of the great exodus. So then his followers start talking to him about these signs and wonders that he is doing and likening them back to the signs and wonders of the great exodus and the manna in the desert. So this is John 6, verses 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to them, Well, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And as this kind of confusion hits and they argue a little bit, then verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last days. Okay, this is huge. But of course, the Jews do not like this statement. Okay, there's a lot of theology in there that they don't agree with. So they push him on it and saying, how can you come from heaven? How can you say God is your father? We know your father. You're the son of Joseph, right? You came from Nazareth, right? But this is what Jesus says back. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, whoa, that just took a turn, right? He's talking in these kind of like, okay, we see what you're doing with the bread thing, and then now all of a sudden it's your flesh, 
Okay, so now mentioning this kind of, it, it brings about one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible, which I just love reading awkward things and talking about it. So this is verse 42 of John 6. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. We feel good? <laughs> now, before you walk away from this, like, vampiric zombie rabbi guy, okay, like, we're just creating context Jesus. He's obviously not promoting cannibalism, okay? Do not walk away from here and think that, right? But how important his flesh is. Okay, abiding in his, his flesh is actually key. His flesh that he actually is going to give and this abiding, this, this quote, feeding, the spiritual feeding on it is what is eternal life, right? The false teachers of First John's context are saying that you can get, you can attain eternal life without Jesus in the flesh because it's only a spiritual matter. But Jesus and John cannot divorce the spiritual from the flesh, as Jesus was perfectly both realities. He was from heaven for earth. Okay? So back to 1 John. The life that we have seen and heard and touched, this was made manifest. This was made flesh for us. Verse 2 of 1 John. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, it's personal. This Jesus who is word, who is the word and life in the flesh is the eternal life which was with the Father and then now is also with us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Okay, John uses a lot of this we and then you language, right? Like, remember, this is written to a very real followers of Jesus in first century Asia Minor, but as this is the word of God, it transcends to all generations of followers of Christ. So we, the firsthand eyewitnesses of Jesus, we have seen him, we have touched his hands and feet, we've smelled his hair, we've heard his teachings with our own ears, not just from someone else or through just a letter. We walked and talked with God. We were with Emmanuel, literally. And we want you to have the same closeness to him. Now, for you and I today, accessibility means something very different than it did back then, right? The fact that we can watch in real time on our phones or whatever, what's going on, on the other side of the world is crazy, right? But back in the day, when you have no internet, no phones, no emails, no faster way to get news to someone than actually showing up and telling them something, you have to rely on who was the closest to the situation. Right, these first-hand witnesses. In the first century AD, first-hand witnesses' accounts were considered factual. These were actually held up in court. Okay, these were actually the things that were, that were key. This is also why false teaching is such a big deal, because this can be taken advantage of. Someone could say, I was close with Jesus, I was there too, and here's what I learned, and they talk about it, right? And then all of a sudden, if you believe that, that's what you believe about Jesus. So the we in John's letters is the, is the ones who were actually truly with Jesus, the one that Jesus appeared to post-death and gave them the Great Commission. And by then, this sent one, or the apostolic message, 
that Jesus gave to his people, this is what they are passing through to subsequent generations of followers of God. So this closeness that we have as believers, this fellowship of saying, yeah, if you, you understand what we're saying, we kind of have this camaraderie, this fellowship, but it's not just about us. It's not just this fellowship in human form, Verse the end of verse 3, and indeed our fellowship is also with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Ours is not just a religion like that of Artemis, if you're from Ephesus, or any other deity where the worship is this God that's separate from us and we're these lowly humans, but that we actually have communion and fellowship with our God. Fellowship, as we talked before, this word koinonia means an intimate spiritual relationship, building one another up intimately. Right? This, this spiritual closeness we have with the Father and, and Jesus Christ, this can't be taken away. Right? This, can't, this isn't just something that can just ebb and flow with the whims of whatever sounds good for that day or by circumstances. And that, something that cannot be taken away or circumstantially destroyed, that is what brings a joy, a true joy that surpasses that circumstances and not dependent on whatever the flesh wants. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This true biblical joy. So for John, he's reminding them that the true teaching of the Christian faith, the teaching that the word of life was made flesh, we saw it, we lived it, we proclaimed it, and the fellowship we have with one another in the midst of all this craziness going on around us is because of the fellowship we have with the Father himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. So here's some questions I have for us today. As we begin thinking through John's letter, we begin marinating in the interesting stuff that he is bringing out. Why would he react so strongly to false teaching about Jesus in the flesh? Is it such a bad thing to think of Jesus of Nazareth as this God's spirit possessed somebody from Nazareth who just did good things on earth? Like, is it, is it that crazy to think of it. Is, is Jesus really just God's avatar, right? Well, here's the offensive part to Jesus being God in the flesh. That means that he has authority to speak on what we can or cannot do in the flesh, right? If God lived 100% like a human, then he can speak with 100% authority on how we are to live as humans because he did it perfectly, Right? He lived our human life perfectly. So why would we, humans who live life imperfectly, think we have the right way? Or that we can make our own decisions about our flesh. Right? God is the reigning authority on all things spiritual. I don't think we would debate that too much. But he still is the reigning authority on all things flesh, too. That's offensive against the flesh. Do you feel yourself a little offended? I don't know. Maybe, like, no, he can't tell me what to do. It's so much easier to leave God in the spiritual realm, isn't it? Look at this. In the Great Commission in Matthew, after Jesus resurrects from the dead, amen. As Jesus resurrects from the dead, says this, Matthew 28, 18, all authority, read this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, heaven and earth. Paul takes it even a level further, writing this to the Philippian church, Philippians 2.9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? God is not just this ruler of spirits or in the heavenly realms. He is ruler of earth, above every name, ruler of all. So if thinking comes up in our brains that's like, well, I'll give him my prayers my acts of worship and, and some of my jewelry or tattoos, but what I do with my body is my own. Like, that's not right thinking. Well, sin is just a spiritual idea, so you know, if I, if I keep caring for people and I only do good deeds to others, God can see I'm a good person, right? And he has to forgive me, right? It's just not the right thinking, right? These are getting away from the actual truth. The Bible often breaks down that there is darkness everywhere, Okay, this darkness is this sin, this brokenness. It's inside us. It's all around us, right? And this is just normal. That's just what the darkness is. But then there was this life, and this life was the light of men. As John writes in his gospel account, John 1.5, says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We'll see this as we get into 1 John more, but the darkness can only be defeated by the light. Not some knowledge, not by just good works, but by the light. The light that is life, the life that is the Word, the Word who was in the beginning, the Word made flesh, the flesh being Jesus Christ. And this is why it's so important that Jesus Christ came in the flesh as fully God, to be that light in the darkness for all humans. Jesus said it is done. The light is established. It's not some hidden knowledge or self-actualization, but in the repentance to the only one who has the authority in heaven, being spirit, and on earth, being flesh, to forgive sins and to save. This is why, guys, I really believe truth cannot be made up or rationalized out of our own minds. We simply cannot make our own truth. We don't have that authority. We don't have the authority to do that. That belongs to God alone. And this is why this book and this study that we're going through is so crucial. And it's not because we're studying how people dealt with this stuff 2,000 years ago, but because this ancient text, 2,000 years old, is so relevant today, right? Struggling with faith, wanting to give into fleshly desires or, or whatever we want in life, and hearing other ways of life is like honey to our ears, right? That's what the people of God struggled with just a few decades after Christ and have dealt with since the beginning of time because it is a human problem. But God is also from the beginning of time. And just as we are bent on ourselves, he is bent toward constantly redeeming us. And as we'll get into the next few weeks, John is going to walk us brilliantly, not again with arguments like Paul, but to walk us through this beautiful poetic way of what it looks like then in our actions, in our flesh then, to walk in this light that is God made real to us in Jesus Christ. So now today we can sit in the wonder and grace and awe of Christ and knowing that he wants deep relationship with us to be that light in the darkness in us and around us. And we're going to respond to that today. And you know how we do it. You know we respond in singing. We love to sing want to pray. I will be in the back. I would love to pray with you. 
Um, pray with each other, pray individually. God makes that accessible to us so good to give our earthly treasures, to give to the church body so then we can bless the community uh, through our treasures. And then, of course, to receive communion. Sheena's prepared communion for us and to just go and to remember when Jesus, when Jesus talked about his flesh and his blood. And even though the language just feels kind of weird and like the walking dead, it still is this incredible moment of Jesus saying, hey, I'm just going to give you this reminder is actually physically through my body and through my death that there will be actual life. And whoever eats of it, not this little cracker we have for you, but of Jesus will not die, will have eternal life. And that is beautiful to go to the tables to that. So let me pray and let's respond to our great God today.